Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So I was at the gas station this morning. (laughs) (laughs) Good intro, good win. I was at the gas station this morning, and the gas froze. Like the gas was not. Wait, are you out are of you joking? Pump. No, I I it was. It How was cold coming is it? In, it's. I mean, it's not. It's like minus five Fahrenheit, which is cold, but not like that's pretty cold. It's cold, but it's, it's not cold. that that cold. And I actually sat there for twenty minutes filling my tank of gas because it was coming out as like gas sludge. I didn't even know that could happen. I didn't either until and I've actually I've lived in Minnesota for six years, so you you would have thought. And it's been colder than that. Yeah. That yeah. is wild. So I guess if you don't properly insulate your gas storage tank, it becomes sludge. Well, this is why uh, the rest of the country should do as New Jersey does and make someone else pump your gas for you. The rest of the country should literally never do as New no, Jersey does. No, please don't do that. It's a terrible idea. <laughs> I, I don't. I feel like the thing with New Jerseyans about this is they don't – like they're weirdly proud of this, but they don't realize how unserious it makes them look literally in every other state it's like it's like you ding-dongs can't even pump your own gas new jersey is not the only state i was either i can't remember oregon or oregon oregon used to have it but then they changed it because they realized it was stupid but in new jersey we're too dumb well the thing about oregon is that they were also constantly being compared to new jersey and they didn't want that (laughs) anymore they were like this is a terrible club i want nothing to do with this by the way, did you know I, I actually spent the first four years of my life in New Jersey? I am in part wow. of New Jersey. I'm a part of New Jersey. You're a bridge and tunnel boy. Oh, so, so much. 100%. Right. Bridge All and right. tunnel and railroad, mostly. Mostly railroad. <laughs> railroad boy sounds Planes, trains, and automobiles. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson. I'm here with my two other regular co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And we are thrilled to be with you here for our very special end-of-year episode. For those who may have listened last year or caught our little blurbs at the beginning of our recent weekly episodes, we like to end each year with a listener-submitted episode. So we are taking topics that people have written to us uh, that they want us to discuss and object lessons they've submitted that they want us to share, and we're bringing them to you in audio format for this very special week before the new year, uh, because we are off on leave. We are recording this the week before. So if there are any big developments we don't cover in this or acknowledge, Apologies for that. We will get to it the following week. Mostly it's because by the end of the year, we've just stopped caring. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. But then New Year's gets us all revved up again for the brilliant month of January, uh, which is always very exciting. But we are have a great set of topics submitted from Los Angeles. Actually, way more, I should note, than we were actually able to cover in our time frame. We had to cut a few off, and apologies for that. We are sending them over to our sister podcast, The Lawfare Podcast, for their end-of-year episode in hopes they can do a deeper dive on a few of the more specific and technical topics uh, that we got in that we thought we couldn't do justice to in such a brief format. But for the topics we do have, we are really excited to dig into them with you, the listener. Some of them are serious. Some of them are a little less serious, but we're going to handle them all for you to make sure we cover the topics you need covered before you say goodbye to 2022 and what we are calling the Toodle 2022 Do Edition. <laughs> well done, Scott. We tried. I, I, was, I was skeptical you're going to get that on your first take. You know I was that. I was as well. <laughs> I've written it out. I've written it out in a very specific format in my little planning document here. But I'll add the do to make sure I get that last two in. I think that works better. Doodle 2022 do edition. Alan, you have in our planning document here the first topic. Why don't you tee it up for us? Uh, I will. So this is from Patrick. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, I would very much enjoy it if Quinta would elaborate on her comment about the, quote, radical political statement of the Star Wars series, Andor. Hell yes. I'm so excited for this. You're going to have to cut me off because I'm just going to talk for like 15 minutes. So first off, I should say, spoiler alert, I'm going to spoil absolutely everything. And I don't know how much sense this will make if you have not seen Andor. So you have been warned. So, okay. What I will say is that I think the original Star Wars, like OG Star Wars, 
the politics are sort of blandly anti-authoritarian. Obviously, the good guys and bad guys are very clear. That is part of its charm. I, I will not dispute that. I think what Andor does, and I, I'm riffing here on a lot that's been written about it, that I find really interesting is goes deeper into the mechanics of what authoritarian and specifically fascist rule looks like from the ground up, how it works, how it is experienced by the people both on the inside and the people who are being crushed under it in a very kind of banality of evil way, right? Um, just looking into the mechanics of how such a vast organization would grow and expand and be experienced and how people would try to live under that rule. And I think that is interesting because it makes it feel more real. And it also makes it feel more real because, you know, obviously original Star Wars produced in the 1970s, sort of generic anti-authoritarian, everybody can get behind that. Right now, we're obviously in a, a moment of sort of rising populist far right prominence around the globe. And so making a, a media product that I think is explicitly anti-fascist, is actually quite a thing for Disney of all companies to to do. And there are specifically, I mean, I'm comfortable calling him fascist because a lot of the iconography is clearly very fascist. Um, there's a character who's basically very clearly a riff on the Stasi. Um, there's a, a scene where people at a fancy party are talking about Palpatine and using language that is like, I honestly, I thought somewhat heavy handedly, clearly a reference to Trump where they say, oh, you know, he, he says what he means. Right. But then the the other portion of the other half is that I think that, you know, it's it's not only this sort of very finely sketched portrait of the sort of mechanics of fascism, but an endorsement of violent unrest against fascism and kind of a manual for how to do it in surprisingly thoughtful way. Uh, Tony Gilroy, who created the show and also made Michael Clayton, my personal favorite movie about law firms, has said that the the heist sequence um, is based on a bank robbery done by Joseph Stalin. Not that I think that Tony Gilroy is a Stalinist, but he clearly did actually take some serious uh, take a serious look and think seriously about rebel, violent rebel movements and how those mechanics work. There's a really, really interesting exchange between two of the rebels about sort of the distinction and tactics. Um, and anyway, and so I've been going on for a really long time, but it there is a point at the end of the series where it they're essentially it, the series Marva Andor is essentially making the argument that you can't just kind of sit on your hands and make a life for yourself and try to hope this will go away. You have to uh, rise up and you have to do so violently. Like that's pretty hardcore for a Disney product, man. I'm into it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I also love Andor, and again, I just continue to be shocked that Disney created something good. I, I will say I, I think that Andor is better on the rebel side than on the Empire side in terms of of describing it. I think it does a good job with the kind of ambiguities of of rebel violence. And I mean, there's obviously that that incredible speech that uh, that, you know, Sarsgaard gives about his, his like sunless space. And OK, that was a little bit overdone. That was a little overdone. I I, I mean, I still I mean, he's such a good actor, though, that who cares? You know, I I I. I kind of want to know more about the empire itself. I want to know more about its ideology. It has some surface kind of fascist elements to it, but I'm still not sure like what the what makes it click. You know, I don't get a, a big cult of personality vibe from Palpatine going on. Like, I want to know how the how school children are taught there. Um, I, I it, it seems more kind of imperialist to me than kind of more obviously fascist, but obviously those are those are uh, blurry distinctions. But I, I look forward to 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 more of the political sociology in season two. I have not seen Andor, so I have no opinion on this. But I'm looking. Oh damn! To- I just spoiled the whole thing for you. Sorry, no, man. That's okay. I'm not sensitive about spoilers. It's Scott cool. looks so bored right now. He's looks so. I bored. watch so. It's so I good. see so little of these shows. It's fine, but I so I like the spoilers. I like to be able to keep up with the dialogue. But I will say there was a moment, if you remember, in like 2017 when the new Star Wars movies were coming out, and a bunch of people on like R slash the Donald were like angry at Disney and Star Wars because they thought there was an implied anti-Trump message in the new Star Wars movie. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, it was a real thing. And I, at the time, I was like, guys, you're really kind of feeding into a 
weird narrative <laughs> if you are just so threatened by this Star Wars <laughs> that you're like, oh, but we're obviously the Empire. And the Empire is not that bad. But it's, I guess Disney decided to run with that, <laughs> it sounds like, which I'm excited to see the final fruit of. Because that is that was quite a moment, I feel like, in pop culture and politics. Quinta, you have our next topic here. Why don't you pitch that up for us? All right. This question is from David, who asks... President Biden campaigned as the person who's been there, done that, knows what he's doing in the international space in contrast to Donald Trump. We're now halfway through his term, and I'm wondering how you'd grade him as a foreign policy president. Do you feel like he's made America credible again? I guess that's Maka. Uh, Scott, I will turn this one over to you. (laughs) Maka. I like Maka. That's the dream. You know, I think that's a good kind of summation of how President Biden framed foreign relations. Of course, he was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for decades. As vice president, he had very involved in foreign affairs. And so he definitely had that kind of claim and credentials. But then, frankly, the first big foreign policy development of his administration was the Afghanistan withdrawal, which went horribly. A lot of for reasons that were beyond the Biden administration's control, but not all, probably. I mean, I think some missteps and miscalculations were made in that. And and frankly, the Biden administration probably could do more to own up to that to some extent, Um, even though, frankly, there are also a lot of problems that compounded by prior administrations and lots of other officials that need to be acknowledged as well. So, you know, they kind of had this moment where you really saw the withdrawal from Kabul and the collapse of Kabul coincide with this flipping in popular approval of President Biden. And I suspect it was a contributor to that fact that all of a sudden he found himself underwater in his polling numbers um, that he hasn't really found his way up from, although that's not super rare for modern presidents. But now he's got Ukraine. And I think Ukraine has been handled pretty masterfully. And I think it's actually one of these things that He's handled his administration has handled exceptionally well. I think most people acknowledge that. Um, Republicans are mostly on board with it so far. We'll see if that changes in the next two years as we get closer to 2024. I suspect it will be calibrated a little bit, but nonetheless, they they nobody's really criticizing his core, the core thrust of his policy towards Ukraine at this point in any part of the political spectrum. And it appears to be working because Russia has lost pretty dramatically, uh, and we have a very strong relationship with Ukraine, including its president Volodymyr Zelensky, who is visiting. Washington, D.C. today. So, you know, I think he's doing actually fairly well with some of those missteps, which inevitably happen for any administration. Like nobody can bat a thousand in this really difficult policy arena. But the framing, his ability to frame himself as a very successful foreign policy president is going to be under real stress leading to 2024. Republicans have a lot more incentive to begin to try and tear apart and obstruct and make executing parts of that agenda more difficult. We'll see to the extent to which they can do that around Ukraine, given that there's popular support um, for supporting Ukraine that's pretty strong right now, but that may tamper down if the economy suffers, if other things suffer. So I'll have to see where he goes. But I do think he's a pretty good foreign policy president. In terms of credibility, though, the simple truth is that you know, the United States, no president can actually be that super credible on his own, simply because when the administration turns over, you get a president with a very different foreign policy views. And until you get to a point where you can get Congress on board about codifying things in legislation or in treaties that survive past the presidential administration, executive orders, executive agreements can only go so far. I wrote a piece about this right after the election in foreign policy that gets at this. I think it's still true. So I think America still has a credibility problem so long as we have such a deep political divide that enters into the foreign affairs realm and such tightly contested politics that it's not clear a lot of foreign policy positions will survive to the next presidential administration. Well, let's go on to our next topic. This is a question from Bob Diedrich. Bob asks, after January 6th, there was a lot of talk about the need for a domestic terrorism bill. Is there any possibility that the large number of mass shootings in 2022 will provide sufficient impetus to get such a bill through a divided Congress? Alan, let me start with you on this one uh, and then go over to Quinta for your takes on this. And I have a thought or two as well. Yeah. So, you know, this is something I actually written about for Lawfare, making the argument that there's a cluster of federal laws, specifically around insurrection and seditious conspiracy, that increasingly function de facto as our domestic terrorism laws. We don't have a domestic terrorism law in the federal criminal code. We have a a foreign terrorism prohibition, and we have a domestic terrorism definition, but we don't have actually a a standalone law criminalizing domestic terrorism. Um, And I think that for, for the political side of domestic terrorism. And I think it's actually perfectly appropriate to call, for example, January 6th, a domestic terrorist act. I, I think that's totally accurate. I do think seditious conspiracy and the, and the insurrection, although 
written in the mid 19th century. And so they have their quirks function tolerably well as domestic terrorism statutes in the sense of providing the additional rhetorical and symbolic condemnation of an act, right? It's not as if, if we didn't have these laws, we couldn't get domestic terrorists on the actual substantive offense of whatever it is that they're doing. It's, it's that the domestic terrorism law or having a law that specifically criminalizes insurrection or seditious conspiracy adds that additional symbolic weight. The part that's not covered, however, is what we might call non-political domestic terrorism. So an example of this might be, let's say, Dylan Roof walking into the church in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, into a sort of historically black church and killing a bunch of people there. That was clearly terrorism. I think that's a fair way of describing it. It's white supremacist terrorism. But, but But it's not against the government. And so there's no hook into insurrection or seditious conspiracy. Now, obviously, it's not difficult to punish Dylan Roof for what he did. He just he committed murder. But what we lack in federal law is that additional ability to charge him with a special crime of domestic terrorism. And you know, there there have been proposals to create a new law. Um, I don't think they're going to frankly go anywhere. Congress is seems uninterested in really doing anything um, meaningful after mass shootings. And honestly, the 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 sad fact is that. There is a non-trivial constituency on the far right, uh, which is increasingly an important part of the Republican base, um, that while I'm not sure would you know, endorse these sorts of violent crimes, uh, I, I think would not take too kindly to, to feeling singled out by attempts to create a new domestic terrorism statute. So I am skeptical that the status quo uh, will change. Yeah, a couple of points here. So I think first off, it's first off, agreeing with everything that Alan said. I also think it's important to, <laughs> to yeah, that, that's a first, um, to, to keep in mind that there are a lot of mass shootings in the United States that are not terrorism by any reasonable definition. So I completely agree that uh, Dylan Roof's, that was terrorism, the El Paso shooting, for example, which was motivated by uh, racist and white supremacist theories about the Great Great Replacement and was apparently uh, targeted at Latino um, Americans. I would categorize that as terrorism, even though, Alan, as you say, it's not sort of explicitly anti-government necessarily. But there are also a lot of shootings that don't have that ideology behind it at all, like the Uvalde shooting. Um, I don't think there's any indication that the shooter there was motivated by uh Political reasoning. I mean, we're we're now at the the anniversary once again of of Newtown, and there wasn't any political ideology behind that either. That isn't to undercut how unbelievably horrific those massacres were. It's just to say that I'm not quite sure that they're terrorism per se. And so, you know, I, it might make sense to kind of think of of issues of gun control and terrorism as overlapping but not synonymous if that makes sense i completely agree with alan that it, it really doesn't seem like there's much appetite on the part of congress to to take action on the gun control end and i think that's particularly unfortunate because we've already seen in the wake of the supreme court's recent decision in bruin uh sort of really raising the bar historically speaking, for what governments have to show in order to implement gun control measures. Lots and lots of gun control statutes are are getting struck down on the state level and congressional action, to some respect, might help with that. Um, Bruin does leave some room, but it just doesn't seem like there's any interest in, in taking that up. So I think it's unfortunate and disappointing. That said, I also think that it's important to to keep in mind uh, when we talk about the potential need for a domestic terrorism legislation that, as Alan says, there the federal government already has a lot of tools in its toolbox. And I would argue that the problem is that they're not using those tools and not thinking systematically about how to best use those tools. And before, I think it seems like conversation around the need for a domestic terrorism statute has kind of died down. But my my view after thinking this over, and I do think there are serious arguments on both sides, is that before we start talking about granting, you know, the FBI new authorities to go after right wing extremism in this country, uh, we need to maybe think about why the FBI isn't using its existing tools in a serious enough way and isn't taking that extremism seriously enough. 
Yeah, I mostly agree with all of that. Uh, the one thing I would say is, you know, I'm a little maybe more skeptical than Alan is of of using a bunch of 19th century laws uh, and repurposing them for this particular purpose. And I don't think their record has actually been that great, particularly before the January 6th prosecutions of a lot of those efforts. But that said, like since 9-11, we've seen the Congress enact a whole range of statutes that take slices of the domestic terrorism problems. So there's lots of statutes now, actually dating some date back to the 1990s, a lot post 9-11, that do th- target things and make it a federal crime to target any sort of government institution with a bomb or tar- try and kill federal officials doing their duty. And then we have older statutes that are part of that 19th century family that have been used a little more reliably um, that talk about interfering with federal officials' functions and have been, many of them have been updated more recently than that. And, and I think those kind of cover a lot of the same ground. January 6th is a little tricky because it's just not how a lot of people thought domestic terrorism would happen when they were enacting those statutes. They were thinking of the Oklahoma City bombing. They weren't thinking of, you know, a riot gone with a political kind of drive behind it, um, which is uh, my, my effort to roughly summarize what January 6th probably looks like in terms of tools and how they were thinking about methodology-wise. And then on top of that, you have the hate crimes overlay. That's actually how a federal government has approached domestic terrorism historically over the last few decades is to say there's a strong nexus between hate crimes and domestic terrorism. So we use hate crime statutes to get at domestic terrorist angles. But that falls apart a little bit when the groups you're targeting aren't necessarily motivated by animus or at least so squarely motivated by animus against a particular religious group or ethnic group, um, but is some other political motivation. You know, How do you think about QAnon? How do you think about a lot of these other things motivating people these days? I'm skeptical of the need for this, but I'm not skeptical of the idea that Congress needs to look at the nest of statutes we have covering these areas and handle them. I don't think domestic terrorism as a label actually covers all those sorts of modern problems the United States is facing in this regard. Um, and so it needs actually a little more sophisticated response to that. I don't think I think domestic terrorism is just people trying to import a model from foreign terrorism into the domestic context, and it really doesn't work there for constitutional and policy reasons. But that doesn't mean there isn't still work to be done in this space. And on a gun control point, I will say a lot has to be there, but this has actually been a good year for gun control. Let's bear in mind, we've seen the most comprehensive gun control legislation Congress has passed in 20 years happen this year, and a lot yeah, happening totally at the true. state level. We're actually, I think, seeing in a way that's really heartening a little bit of a breaking of the strong, strong barrier against gun control legislation. Who knows how far it will go? I doubt it's going to collapse entirely. But we're seeing some progress on that front precisely because of this horrible wave of violence we're living through. And that's a shine of a little bit of a ray of hope, I think, in this particular moment. Okay, next question from Jonathan. I've heard great analysis from many corners of lawfare. Thank you. We appreciate it. About how Trump is using delay tactics in court in bad faith, but not how we might stop his and others' delay abuses going forward. Is there anything we can do as a society to fix these imbalanced incentives without infringing on normal people's rights? Perhaps analogies to anti-slap laws? Is anyone in our institutions thinking about this? It's an interesting question. Well, let me let me say a thought, and then I'll kick it over to you, Quentin Scott. I, I I worry about trying to make law based on stuff Trump does. Look, we're just dealing with a lot of truly unprecedented things. You know, we're we're investigating the former president criminally. He's being sued civilly. Congress is getting involved. All these sorts of things. I'm actually not sure that it's such a bad idea for all of these issues to be litigated thoroughly before the courts. Now, there's no question that Trump is a bad faith actor and he's not doing this because he wants to advance the law. He's doing this because he's Donald Trump. But I think there's a sense in which, at least on some margin, it's okay for Trump to fight, you know, every step of this because I think that this just has to go slowly. And there's not much I think that is, frankly, um, transferable from the Trump context to any other context? Yeah. Again, I will I will chime in with two thoughts. Um, one is that I think it depends on the context here. So at least in the congressional context, for example, um, a lot of what you see is Trump being able to basically just delay Congress from getting hold of information by just endlessly litigating. We saw a ton of this under the Trump administration because the procedure for civil enforcement of congressional subpoenas is essentially a lot of appellate litigation that takes years and years and years. And there are proposals to deal with that. Um, They were incorporated into the Protecting Our Democracy Act, which was passed by the House, uh, went nowhere in the Senate. Alas, RIP, it is going nowhere. And that would have legislated a 
essentially an expedited process for uh, congressional efforts at civil subpoena enforcement through the courts. And so I do think that obviously that went nowhere in part because the Biden administration was leery about essentially handing a loaded gun to a new Congress under control of House Republicans. Um, but I do think that that, that is a, a model um, and frankly, something that I would support no matter who is in control of the House, because the institutional power of Congress is important for democracy. The other point I would make is, I mean, I do think that Trump has shown some weaknesses in the system just in terms of how dependent it is on the willingness of people to engage in, in good faith. But I do agree that, you know, one thing that I have been writing a, about a lot in the last year and that I should hopefully have a uh, essay about out soon is the use of the courts as a space to kind of push back against falsehood, push back against bad faith, which I think is a little bit what this listener is getting to. And my conclusion is kind of that, you know, I think courts can do more. There are ways that we can be more aggressive. We've seen, for example, conversations about whether or not Trump's attorneys will be sanctioned for filing meritless and frivolous uh, civil suits against, you know, Hillary Clinton and others, for example. But at the end of the day, I do think that, you know, the courts are just not suited to this in in this way, because as Alan says, these things need to be fought out. That is part of the system and they just can't move quickly enough. Um, so I do think that there may be some kind of Trump proofing that can be done. But at the end of the day, I agree with Alan that, you know, Trump proofing to such an extent that it blocks out, you know, the rest of the system for people who are acting in good faith is a real danger and something that we should be careful not to do. I really think you have to separate Trump from a lot of these other cases, and blending them together actually is a little is a little misleading. Most of Trump's delay tactics hinges on the unique characteristics of him being a president, and then the Mar-a-Lago case, particularly a former president, particularly around separation of powers concerns and a lot of kind of like the political valence pseudo separation of powers or federalism concerns that can kind of raise right. And so they're not arguments that people are able to make, and they feed into a very problematic dynamic in this regard and that federal courts just don't like to resolve questions like that. And so they find ways to rule as narrowly as possible and often kind of dither and sl and very slowly approach questions like that. And so that's a problem that's going to be true of any modern president. Congress could trim it down by enacting expedited procedures or tighter timeframes and things like that if they wanted to. And I think there's a good argument that they should in some cases along the lines Quint has described. But you can't get away with it entirely so much as you provide the judiciary with a fair amount of discretion in terms of justiciability, case management, and how it approaches these things, because it's all reflecting that congressional concept of its own role and how it relates to the separation of powers. That said, uh, one area you could do something about this that I've written about a fair amount this year, uh, and Chris will check out a long, very boring, but to some, but very stimulating to others report Yay. at the Brookings Institution. You finally got it in. You finally got it in there, Scott. Finally got in a lawfare podcast because no one will talk to me about my very long report I wrote. This is not true, listeners. We have been trying to get Scott to talk about this on the Lies. Podcast. No one, we have no one will over, come. over again. Everyone makes false promises about hosting a podcast Stop with me about so it. Bashful, it never Scott. happens. There are four people who would love to hear about this. <laughs> I will say the short the short version is there is a one of the biggest sources of the effective discretion over justiciability courts have is standing doctrine, a super malleable doctrine um, that we're seeing being reshaped and remade in different ways by courts that now have different ideological preferences. And uh, in my report, I talk about some ways that at least Congress could, in theory, within the doctrine as it stands, begin to rein in and provide a little more either uh, broader standing. So it becomes no longer a legal obstacle that takes up so much court time to resolve and therefore it isn't as much an obstacle litigation or otherwise define some of its contours a little bit better. So something worth looking at there if folks are interested at all. Quinta, I think you have our next prompt. Okay. I'm excited for this one. I have, str I have strong feelings. I do too. I'm going to go first. As, as do I. All right. It's, okay. it's your prerogative. This is a question from Jim. Who wins Werewolf or Vampire and how? Uh, okay. Can, sorry. So can, can I, before you say that, I have a prediction about how okay. everyone's going to vote. Can I make my prediction? Well, I want you to write it down on a piece. We'll write it down yeah, on a piece of paper. Write it down now. Because okay. okay. otherwise we'll, they're going to change our votes. Okay. Okay. It's, that's true. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Everyone take a moment. Okay. The, the object in motion is, is changed when it's observed. Observer effect. Yeah. Okay. 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 So here, here is, I'm going to tell you my reasoning. First off, I would like to put in a plug for my favorite uh, Vampire vs. Werewolf movie, What We Do in the Shadows, the movie, mm. not the TV series, which I haven't seen. It's excellent. Wonderful. Agreed. Second wholeheartedly. 
Okay, I have thought about this. Uh, my position is that vampires are the monsters of the aristocracy and werewolves are the monsters of the people. Please stop bringing political theory into this. Just give us an answer. It's not political theory. <laughs> I So no, I think I think that the, the blue collar werewolf will triumph over the aristocratic vampire and it will be a victory for the workers of the world. You I, blew I have no spot. thoughts about how. But that is that is my theory. It is totally a thing. Blue collar, like working class werewolf versus aristocratic vampire is absolutely a trope. All the vampires have castles. You know, they all have accents. They drink. Werewolves can't even keep one shirt nice. (laughs) They just get ripped up every time. Why does that matter? Why does that matter in a fight? Yes, our audio engineer Kara is pointing out that the aristocracy will underestimate the blue collar Mm. werewolves. I completely agree. I think the the, aristoc- the aristocracy will co-opt the blue-collar werewolves, I think is what's going to happen. They're going to sow dis- dis- distrust werewolf. among the werewolves themselves. Hmm. Alan, what, right. is your, what is your take on this? Okay. Well, Quinta blew up my, my bet. I, I was sure you're going to go for vampires. <laughs> I think this is so Why? obvious. I think it is obvious that vampires will beat werewolves because vampires are wizards and werewolves are just brawlers. Like, like this, this to me is... Vampires are wizards? Oh, they're totally wizards. To, what to the me, hell? To me, what? this is... To me, this is... To, to take this into a different fantasy realm, like... If in classic fantasy you're arguing about like who's going to win the the wizard or the warrior, like obviously the wizard's going to win. And to me, vampires are sophisticated. They have access to all sorts of, I don't think magic of some sort or another. And werewolves are they're just I don't know they're just they're just grumpy and and bruisers. I, to me, it's obvious the vampires are going to win. I think we all know that Alan thinks he's a wizard. Is what we're getting well, away from. Our vampires. I'm so, I'm so sick of these grumpy, sexy werewolves, exactly. werewolf brawlers as, stealing as, my girlfriends. As a, as a, as here, a nerd, as a nerd who's bad at sports, of course, of course, my only hope is that wizards and nerds triumph. Well, I decided to do some research on this one, guys. I went straight to the source, meaning, of course, the 5th edition Monster Manual, uh, which confirms that, in fact, uh, vampires have like 144 hit points. Werewolves only have 58. So it seems obvious to me that a vampire is going to win. Also, more fundamentally than this, aren't vampires like immortal and undead? And they can't they fly? So can't they just like fly away and just outweigh the werewolf? So I feel like the vampire wins on that. But no, but... Right. It depends. It depends what kind of werewolf and vampire. This is the thing, right? Like, can the werewolves transform at will? Are the vampires wounded by sunlight? Right. If the vampires are wounded by sunlight, I think that they are at a major disadvantage here. No, they just wait. If they turn into bats, can the werewolves eat the bats? I guess if the vampire has to layer at night, then the werewolf, even though it's just a person during the day, could find it and stake it. So that's a that's an edge. Uh, that is a that is a really fair point. That's an edge. I don't know. It's a hard one. I think I'm leaning vampire based on the hit points alone. But I think vampire just calls animal control on the werewolves. Guys, and werewolves are literally the it. underdog. They are quite the underdog indeed. <laughs> the were underdog. Uh, all right. Well, I don't know if we're ever going to get the true answer of this one, but uh, maybe for a Patreon perk, we'll fight it out. You know, roll some d20s, see, see who wins in this contest. Wait before before we go, I want to know. I want to know how Alan thought we would all vote. I, I thought it was I oh, thought yeah. it was reverse. I I was convinced oh. that you were going to you were you were going to um you were going to join me as in my in my nerdy love of vampires as a fellow and wizard because, because exactly, I'm a as nerd. a fellow wizard because you're a fellow wizard I'm and, a weak and nerd. Scott and Scott who is obviously such a bro the, such a the, se- the sexy bruiser who steals exactly. everyone's girlfriends was going to be on the side of werewolf and I just got it so wrong. You no, know, it's a hard call. It's hard to know. I like to say I, I like to think I've got a little wizard in me. I think we all have a little wizard in me. It's fine. <laughs> I still don't understand why you think the, the vampires are wizards. Okay, I just, we need to move on. I don't know. They're kind of lanky. They have kind of magical and, powers. And, and, yeah. And they need more sunlight. Sexy. You know? They're sexy. In a no, different no, way than that. the werewolves. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Man. We, we, we need to move on. That is a real monster thing going on. <laughs> moving on. <laughs> moving on quickly. Moving on. Our next question comes from Nick, and it's a fairly serious one, but definitely worth talking about, and actually we're seeing action on it today. Nick says, I was hoping your team could talk a bit about the Afghan Adjustment Act and how it would help provide legal protections for Afghans who fled the Taliban in the final days of the U.S. military presence. Yeah, I mean, so the Afghan Adjustment Act is a statute that would provide a more permanent path to residency for Afghans who fled to the United States. Most of them are here currently under parole authority, uh, which nominally only lasts two years, uh, although in effect, people here under parole authority can stay longer through some other kind of discretionary tools. But they're not always eligible for the same bundle of 
support, uh, kind of social support, resettlement programs, um, resources that HHS and other agencies have to help them resettle. Depending on what authority you're here under, you get a very different bucket of that. Um, and on top of that, there's also uh, wrapped in, I, I can't actually recall whether it's part of this act or it's a related piece of legislation. Um, there's a question about the SIV cap. There's a special immigrant visa program that people were still processing under to try and get a separate path to U.S. residency if they were people who'd worked with the United States in Afghanistan. There was a similar program for, for folks in Iraq as well that you know is still being processed. There's a question about how to sustain that, get the cap up, things like that. This piece of legislation fell out of the omnibus legislation that draft that Congress has agreed on earlier this year. It is still has the potential to be brought up as an amendment, um, and it has bipartisan support. Uh, I believe Senator Graham indicated that he, Lindsey Graham, uh, who's one of the bipartisan supporters, uh, indicated an intent to try and bring it to the floor uh, for an amendment on the omnibus, um, which I think they will actually be voting on today. This is Wednesday, the 21st, when we're recording this. So we don't know the outcome of this. Um, you know, I, I will say just as somebody who uh, spent a fair amount of their career in Iraq uh, and knows Iraqis uh, who have who've benefited from the Iraqi SIV program uh, and folks who have come here as refugees and has done, done some refugee work at various chapters of my career in the past, you know, these are people who have survived really, really daunting circumstances, a lot of which were products directly and indirectly of a lot of U.S. policies and a lot of whom worked really hard to try and make Afghanistan, a country that we were working with them towards that 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 failed, obviously, and, and living through the consequences of that. If we're serious about taking responsibility for actions, you know, we've undertaken Afghanistan at any point of any regard, at any point of the last 20 years, I think it has to start stage one by helping those Afghans who helped us and those who are suffering from the consequences of um, the situation falling apart in ways that we, we may not have intended, but nonetheless stem from U.S. actions, at least in part. So in that regard, I, I certainly hope Congress takes up this legislation. Uh, you know, it, it's not necessarily dead. Uh, it does have bipartisan support if it waits the next Congress, but it, it odds are much slimmer um, and it appears getting bogged down in this incredibly messy, visceral, awful politics around immigration that seems opposed to allow any sort of foreign population to, to get a pocket and gets it all messed up in the domestic politics. And uh, my hope is that Senator Graham and other folks, particularly on the Republican side who are leading this, are able to push back some of the concerns in their own caucus and and get people on board with help finding ways to support our, our Afghan allies and other Afghans who are left vulnerable by uh, some of our own policy failures there. Yeah, I'll just underline, I mean, Scott, I think that's a, a great overview. Just the deep moral failure of the fact that it Congress is so unable to take action on this is really, really deeply, deeply depressing. I hope that they'll be able to pull it off. I, I kind of doubt it. Um, I'll put in a plug for uh, Lawfare's podcast series on on the subject of this program um, called Allies, which was put together by our former associate editor, Bryce Clem, which I think is a, a really great and moving and heartrending piece of work on this subject. Good recommendation. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, so next question is from Carl. Why has the United States let Turkey bully Stockholm and Helsinki? And I'd also like to ask Alan... That's me. As the pod's resident Minnesotan, I love it. I love that I am now a resident Minnesotan as a former East Coaster oh, yeah. who didn't even know where Minnesota was. Uh, I'm so proud of being an actual Minnesotan now. Uh, I'd like to ask Alan, as the pod's resident Minnesotan, if the issue is more relevant in Minnesota, given that that's where most Swedish Americans and Nordic Americans live. Good question. So um, 
I, I don't know if if that this is actually in America where most Swedish and you know Nordic Americans live. Um, you know, at this point, I think they're probably fairly well distributed through the United States. I mean, that this immigrant wave is, I think, over you know 150 years old at this point. You know, and even and even here, I would say it, it's not like there is a, I think, strong and active Scandinavian community with really close ties back to, you know. Europe in the way that there is with respect to more recent waves of immigrations, right? For example, kind of a large Somali population here. Um, so I'm not sure this issue is getting much play in Minnesota for that reason. Um, I think it's honestly not getting play anywhere because it's on foreign policy. And to preview another question, Americans don't care about foreign policy. To answer your your kind of overall question, why is the United States let Turkey bully Stockholm and Helsinki? I mean, it's because Turkey has leverage. Turkey is part of NATO and NATO has to accede unanimously to the entry of any new states. And Turkey is one of NATO's largest military powers. And so, um, frankly, NATO and by extension, America needs Turkey, I think, more than Turkey needs NATO and America. And, and, and the realities of realpolitik, frankly, mean that Turkey then gets to throw its weight around. To be clear, that doesn't justify what Turkey is doing and, and you know, in, in its treatment of, of its you know, Kurdish minority and how that then applies to um, its treatment of states particularly um, Sweden uh, that has supported uh, those minorities is, is in many ways quite disturbing, but that is the reality of how international relations works. And Scott, I'm kind of curious if, if you think that there's anything really more to it than that. Well, I actually think there is for the simple reason that Turkey's relationship and control over NATO, I think is much more an incident of kind of a historical path dependency um, than it is actual current geopolitical strategic needs. I mean, Turkey was brought into NATO for very real Cold War reasons several decades ago. NATO is a consensus body, so it can't bring new people in without a unanimous vote. It also does not have a mechanism for removing states from NATO, which I think people may be regretting now, mostly because of Turkey. Um, Turkey has not been a good NATO partner in a million different ways. They have weird relations with Russia. They have played actually a very valuable role, but not like a clear role along with the bulk of the rest of NATO in regards to Ukraine. Um, much more open to engagement with Russia, much less on board with most European states in regards to an anti-Russia stance on Ukraine. That's actually useful in that case because you kind of need some states in that position. But regardless, it's not towing the NATO line. Other NATO operations, Turkey's taken a kind of an independent stance on. Uh, again, remember, Turkey is, has lost its a lot of aspects of its security relationship with the United States where they've been endangered because Turkey keeps buying arms from Russia and having weird engagements with other rival states. And a lot of this reflects the fact that Turkey has a leader, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, that's had for several years now, who is a aggressive, aggressive pursuer of marginal advantage in the international sphere. This guy goes for it in crazy ways in world affairs and bounces all over the place, does like wild, wild things. One of the most interesting people to read about what he's done for and policy wise for the last 20 years. It's worth checking out because he's bouncing all over who he's friends with in a given year. It can change over a couple of years. A lot of it's about his own domestic politics and factors he's trying to balance there. The long and short of it is I think the United States is stuck because we're in NATO, an organization that we're trying to beef up and strengthen, but its own rules say there's no way to get rid of Turkey and Turkey gets a veto vote over admitting new states into the alliance. And Turkey has concerns, shocking, relating to its domestic politics with Stockholm and Helsinki, basically how they handle different groups of expatriate Turks who are involved in some dissent activities or have ties to the uh, Gulenists or other groups that the Erdogan kind of regime sees as rivals or enemies or people they want to extradite, uh, among other groups. And they're trying to use this as leverage to advance that for their own domestic agenda reasons. The United States has other tools they're going to deploy. They're putting pressure back in certain ways. I think in the end, Turkey caves on this for the simple reason that I think actually Turkey, particularly as Russia becomes more isolated, actually loses a lot of its leverage um, in regards to the United States. Um, but we'll have to see where it plays out. In the meantime, though, they're going to make it a painful process to try and get whatever concessions they can get from other NATO allies. And that's just part of Erdogan's foreign policy, man. The guy just really goes for it. An icon. He's leaning in. Such an icon. I can't wait to get my big Erdogan poster done by Shepard Ferry on my wall. <laughs> I, I, I think he's. I think he's like. I think he's the closest that world leaders have to an edge lord. Absolutely, that's actually a great. Really? I mean, yeah. Isn't that Putin? Yeah. No, I, I don't think, think Erdogan so. maybe more edge lordy than Putin. <laughs> yeah, 
because it swings in different directions. That's exactly right. Like he's he's just yeah 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 yeah. yeah. It's right. pretty amazing. There's a great book to be written that there probably already has been written on this, but the Edge Lord of Ankara. Yeah, exactly. There's a great piece in War on the Rock, War on the Rocks by Aaron Stein, the title of which I am blanking on now. I think it's something about zero sum foreign policy in Erdogan. It was just up yesterday. Really good. Um, I think gets at a lot of this. It's worth reading. All right. Well, this leads, as Alan says, nicely into our next question, uh, which is from Evan, who asks, how can we get Americans to care about foreign policy? Outside of the World Cup, Americans just don't seem interested. The issue rarely appears near the top of issues for voters. And anecdotally, none of my Gen Z social group care about foreign policy. Even the policy majors only talk about domestic issues. How can Americans become more aware about and involved in their own foreign policy? I have some thoughts here, but I want to hear what you both have to say. I mean, this is a perennial problem in American history. You know, this is a large, powerful nation that is probably has the single best geographic location of any nation, maybe in human history. It has a, you know an ocean on the right, an ocean on the left, and relatively weak and supportive neighbors from the to the north and south. And so, just on a kind of rational ignorance basis. Americans just don't really need to spend a lot of time thinking about foreign policy. And it's when they do, it's usually because something like a world war has started. I mean, it is true that to the extent that, that Americans are thinking rationally when and about, let's say, policy competence when they're choosing their president, it does make sense to focus much more on foreign policy than it does on, for instance, domestic policy, because in domestic policy, the president has relatively little control, whereas in foreign policy, the president has almost total control, frankly. So that is a reason to care more about foreign policy on the presidential level. But I just, I just do think the realities of of kind of fortress America are such that Americans don't need to think too much about foreign policy. Again, I'm not trying to justify that or or anything like that, but I'm not sure that is or can change. So I have maybe a a, a little bit more provocative thesis in this regard. Uh, And I say this as somebody who cares a lot about foreign policy uh, and and does influence how I vote and how I think about things in the world. But I'm not sure it's always good that Americans care a lot about foreign policy, your everyday Americans. Um, I think it's good that they care about foreign policy generally. I think sometimes when you see foreign policy issues become politicized, where they have parts of the American populace that really, really feel strongly about a particular issue, it actually does weird things to that issue uh, and weird things to American foreign policy generally. Um, So, you know, you can think about how the United States policy towards Cuba uh, has been handled for the last 70 years, right? Um, In large part or in substantial part because there's a strong domestic political valence there. You know, there's some element of that actually increasingly because of the way the Trump administration and the Netanyahu administration engaged the last few years regarding U.S. policy towards Israel. That's actually becoming increasingly politicized. Used to be a lot of bipartisan consensus around that, now gravitating a different way. Some of that disruption can be good. There are good reasons to maybe rethink aspects of these foreign policies and recalibrate it. But I'm not sure always the way to do it is through kind of popular politics. I I do think there's real ways foreign policy impacts Americans, and they need to care about those. Um, And Americans should care about having a good foreign policy and should be care about actually having a responsible United States in the world. And that's about setting out a worldview that has a certain concept of interest kind of broad strategic contours, broad values, and executing it effectively. And I actually think those things really do matter. This goes back to our discussion in Afghanistan earlier. Like Public approval polling of presidents actually really is impacted by foreign policy. Americans don't list it as their number one topic because not the thing that comes up in their day-to-day life, but how they think about the president actually is impacted by foreign policy. I'm very confident. I want to see a quantitative study of this, and maybe I'll figure out how to do one uh, if I have. I don't find a good one. But I'm pretty confident, at least from my anecdotal experience, right, and personal uh, observation of this stuff for the last several years. And so, you know, I'm not sure that's the worst way to do it, but I, I'm not sure it's actually like trying to get Americans to organize around foreign policy is always the best way to do it. There are certain issues, big injustices, big problems that I think it's totally warranted on, but I'm not sure it shouldn't be more the exception than the rule. That said, there is a generally good awareness of being interested in the world, interested in engaging the world and doing that effectively. That's about education, creating opportunities, frankly, greater economic equality um, so that more people have an opportunity to engage in the outside world in various ways and engage with educational opportunities. I think that's all very real and worth pursuing. But that's a little different than, you know, maybe engaging in it from policy or p- political perspective. I don't know how that strikes all you all other than ext- absurdly elitist, um, which I'm making a little yes. bit of a provo- I'm making the provocative side of this argument deliberately. But but I welcome your all's thoughts as well. Yeah, I mean, I that's you're really coming in hot there, Scott. Um, I, I have two independent 
points, which I will make rather than get drawn into a flame war with you on this. Let's just let's just say that I, I disagree. So two points. One is that I do think that obviously Americans not caring about foreign policy, as we've all said, has is a long running problem. It is not new. That said, I do think that there is perhaps a particular I, I have not measured this. Maybe I'm just pulling this out of thin air. I welcome quantitative political scientists telling me that I am wrong. A particular apathy within millennials and Gen Z, because, well, maybe less Gen Z, but millennials, there's sort of a generation that came of political age around the time of the Iraq war. Um, and there's a real anti-interventionist sentiment that grows. And I think that we've we've seen really uh, take a strong place in how uh, politicians think about this um, in the U.S. in the last few years, and that that in a way, I mean, it, it comes from a very real place, right? I think there there are legitimate reasons um, to be upset about how the war in Iraq was handled, but it becomes this position that all interventions are bad, and therefore we don't have to think about the outside world. I think the the strongest formulation of this that I've ever seen came from a leftist writer in, I can't quite remember when, it was sometime around the beginning of the war in Syria, who posted on social media, and this has always stuck with me, um, the great thing about being an anti-interventionist is that I don't have to know anything about the country in question to oppose taking action there, which That's points awesome. for honesty. <laughs> you're basically saying that you don't care about anyone else in the world, right? You can know and care about Syria and still don't think that the U.S. should intervene. So I do think that, that there is that kind of strain of that, I think, is what I've just described is the most ugly manifestation of it coming from the left. There are obviously also ugly manifestations from the right and more reasonable manifestations on, on both sides of the political aisle. So that's one thing. The other thing that I will say is that I actually think that caring more about the world outside the United States is, I would argue, increasingly important right now. Because if we're going to understand and take action against democratic decline in the United States, we need to stop thinking of ourselves as so exceptional and so sweet generous. And what I mean by that is that I think that it is really tempting for Americans to try to kind of reinvent the wheel when it comes to thinking about the strength of democracy in the United States um, and what kind of interventions can help save it, rather than looking to the wealth of information that is out there from comparative political scientists who have looked at democracies around the world, what causes them to decline, what strengthens them, you know, if we understand the U.S. in comparative context, I think it is a lot easier to understand what is happening right now um, in terms of the rise of populist authoritarianism as a political movement. And so this is more, you know, looking abroad to understand ourselves rather than thinking about foreign policy and how the U.S. acts in the world. But I do think that that sort of solipsism even is a real hurdle to understanding what is happening within the United States right now. That's that's less of a, both of these things are, are less answers to the question and more sort of saying like, yes, this is a great and important question, but that's kind of where I'm at. For our last topic here, we have a question from Kevin Collins. So I'm using his full name as he shared this on Twitter. Uh, Kevin is a, a wonderful listener and a frequent correspondent around cocktails and other things. Kevin asks, since Muppets come up a lot on the pod, with which Muppet do each of the hosts identify most strongly? Well, so I have a confession to make, which is that I know very little about Muppets, and Muppets oh, were just, God, me too. for whatever reason, not What do you part... think I've been trying to teach you all year? I know, I know. Muppets were just not part of my childhood. I mean, like, I knew of them, but like they were not like an important part of my, of my life, so I don't really have a, an opinion on this. I mean, I definitely know that I am... I'm an order Muppet. There's no question about that. But I don't know what kind of Muppet I am. So actually, I was hoping that you, Scott, with your encyclopedic knowledge of Muppets, could tell me what Muppet do you think I am most like? That's honestly the the opinion I value the most on this. Yeah, I, I am also, I am the same boat, Alan. I'm, I will say I would have picked you as a chaos Muppet. What? I am so orderly. Even after he combed his hair for this recording session? <laughs> 
<laughs> I am definitely an order Muppet. But I yes, I am also I am not actually a Muppet person. I was gonna go with Sam the Eagle because I'm grumpy. Neo fascist. <laughs> oh no. Whoa. Okay, never mind. I take it back. Uh, no back, Sam back the Eagle. On that one. His home is called the Eagle's Nest, guys. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that is not I didn't know that. Right. Um well I will say my answer for this was going to be Sam Eagle in the streets, Gonzo in the sheets. But I feel like that joke is not going to carry through with with you two as much as I hoped it would. I mean, I know what I know who Gonzo is. There you go. Gonzo is the best. Uh, you know, it is tricky because here's the simple truth is that we are all glasses wearing uh, fairly neutral uh, order Muppet nerds. Uh, and therefore, except you don't actually wear glasses, Alan, but maybe you do uh, when you're reading. And that means we're all kind of the Muppet that I was compared to through most of my childhood, uh, which was Scooter, um, uh, who is the yeah. scientist Muppet with glasses yeah. and curly reddish hair. Uh, and I resemble this Muppet for most we're of my all, childhood. We're all, you're all, Scooter, we're all Scooter. a nickname. Um, so we're all kind of Scooters. Uh, I also consider myself an order Muppet, although I have strong chaos Muppet sympathies uh, at various strikes of my life, but I tend towards order Muppet. And I have to admit, I the Muppet I actually find myself associating the most with is probably Kermit. But I think that's the idea behind the Muppet. That's that too easy. A free man. But I will say, I think I'm, I'm the Kermit from the brief-lived ABC live-action sitcom, uh, where he is a stress show manager uh, and trying to manipulate his castmates in various ways with uh, only limited success. Um, so uh, I feel like that's a little more of a real realistic grounded uh grounded kermit so yeah not great answers i have some swedish chef in me i think i definitely feel like swedish chef when i'm cooking i'm definitely swedish yeah i definitely got it's just all nonsense words and throwing things around the kitchen it really is that's where the chaos muppet really comes out is when i'm just throwing things in pots chasing down you know whatever turkey i'm trying to slaughter and throw in my pot that particular week which is always a dark plot arc henson and company but that's okay also, usually a couple of times a year, I'll, I go too long between haircuts, and then I look like Fozzie Bear. Fozzie Bear is optimistic. I'd say more of a more of an animal. <laughs> Brutal. <laughs> I will say, actually, I think yeah. we also all have a little bit of Ralph the Bear in us because Ralph was always like the one just providing accompaniment and kind of like wry observation off from the side. Uh, and Ralph, I feel like that's a that's a good that's a good Muppet. If you're a good if you're a Ralph Kermit mashup, uh, which might be where I land, I feel like that's a pretty good place to be with a little streak of Gonzo on the weekend. You know, just keep it lively. I feel like maybe this is um, this is how we should think about what guests we have on the show. Like we should try to diversify the Muppetness of our crew. Which like Muppets? like like we we need we need some Miss Piggy on. We need a we need a Cookie Monster. Who is our Miss Piggy? I don't that know. Is the question. I don't know. <laughs> Hmm. That's tricky. I mean, I have a thought, but I don't want to say it because, you know. Because Ben will be offended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Fair fair game. Fair game. Well, well. Well, Kevin, I, I hope I hope you are uh, not up, not underwhelmed by our answers there. Uh, we got a good survey. The Muppets, it's a complex ecosystem of creatures, you know? It's hard to just draw an easy parallel. We've all got a little bit of every different Muppet in us. That's what makes them such... Uh, you know, readily accessible characters. But that brings us to the end of our topics for this week. Uh, apologies, folks. We we're running shorter on time. Nine is all we could get through. We have a few others that we will be sending along, as I mentioned earlier, to the Lawfare podcast, which is doing a end of the year Ask Me Anything episode. And we will hopefully get into at least some of those on that podcast if we can. Um, so keep an ear out and check out the Lawfare podcast feed for that episode coming at you uh, shortly before or after New Year's. I'm not sure which date we're actually going to release it yet. But we do still have a number of object lessons submitted by our listeners and some by ourselves. Alan, why don't you get us started? So this first one is from Nick. For an object lesson, I was hoping you could mention the World Affair Council of America Network. They are a group of grassroots nonprofits from all over the country that are dedicated to promoting international affairs knowledge at the local level. My organization is the Minnesota Affiliate, but there are member councils in nearly every state. Uh, thank you, Nick. That sounds like a very cool organization, and I will uh, have to check out the Minnesota affiliate. Next, we have an object lesson from Evan, uh, which is a book called How Not to Network a Nation by Benjamin Peters, uh, which Evan describes as an interesting book at the intersection of politics and the history of the internet. It contrasts the Soviet and American attempts to build early computer networks, focusing on the competition that made the Soviet attempts flounder and the state subsidized programs that made the American attempts succeed. Interesting. That sounds super interesting. 
I want to read that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm very intrigued by this. Sounds very interesting. Uh, and particularly, it reminds me of a little bit of the uh, For All Mankind uh, thesis about technological competition and like mm. different trajectories it could have taken. I'm kind of curious where this plays in compared to like the other models we know of like arms race and space race. For our next object lesson, this is from TM, the initials, uh, said the first object lesson, he's got a second one coming up shortly, is a net assessment, a War on the Rocks biweekly journal club podcast. Um, I consider this him speaking. I consider it the serious and professional rational security. Q Quint is eye rolling. That is from him, not from me, but you can audibly hear I, for the record. Your eyes. I did not eye roll. I did not eye roll. <laughs> I would say the serious and professional rational security is the Lawfare podcast because it's mostly the three of us with all the jokes and commentary cut out and just our boring professional selves. Uh, but but I will say I've listened, I've listened to Net Assessment. It is also enjoyable. And he proposes, TM proposes, they cover one subject in depth to contrast your three piece format. I wonder if you all consider doing a crossover with them at some point. It could work since both shows target the same NATSEC audience. Uh, well, well, TM, good news for you. I actually went to high school with one of the hosts of Net Assessment. Uh, I did Model UN with them, and we star in a number of very embarrassing crisis videos from Model UN conferences in high school that are somewhere out there in the ether. Um, so I think I might have the leverage to make some sort of collaboration happen at some point. Um, so we'll keep an eye on that in the future. I've been on other War on the Rocks podcasts, uh, but never that one. But they are great friends of ours uh, and produce phenomenal stuff. And so definitely worth checking out that podcast. And, and uh, we'll see. Maybe we have a collaboration in our future. Uh, so the next object lesson is also from TM. Uh, he says the other object lesson relates to the ultra lesson several weeks ago, which I, I think was from Quinta, if I'm not mistaken. Um, most tellings of Watergate briefly mention that Vice President Spiro Agnew resigned due to unrelated corruption charges, unrelated that is to the uh, Nixon Watergate scandal. Uh, the thing is, Agnew's fall is just as interesting as Nixon's. Enter Bagman, a seven part miniseries by Rachel Maddow about the Agnew scandal. The half-hour format uh, limits the required depth for a complex story. I found out recently Maddow made the show into a book, so that might solve my issue. Bagman is relevant because it shows that individuals can achieve accountability even when institutions fail or at least are compromised. Thank you for that. That sounds that sounds good. Yeah, I will underline this object lesson. I very much enjoyed Bagman. And I, I should say Agnew, Agnew is a underrated figure when we talk about the rise mm. of the far right in American politics. He really pioneered the sort of attacking the media style that Trump is so very famous for. I do I do think of you as a negative nattering nabob, Quinta. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to put that on my business cards. You should. And for our final listener submitted object lesson for this episode from Mike, uh, I read part of Mike's email in our last regular episode where he endorsed my eggnog recipe, but he passed along this question for the three of us for an object lesson. What are yours, meaning mine and Quentin Allen too, you know, it's favorite slash standout drinks for the last year. And he recommended his own, which he says is a variation of the standard gold rush, which is two parts bourbon, three quarters part lemon, three quarters part honey syrup. And he recommends swapping Nochino or another walnut liqueur out for a third of the honey syrup, which is interesting. I actually uh, was thinking about making some honey syrup this weekend and may give this a try. But what uh, cocktails or drinks, alcoholic or non-alcoholic, we'll throw out there, were your most standouts from the last year, Quentin Allen? So the so I don't have a drink per se. I mean, I tr I tried this as a cocktail and it was delicious, but I I forget the the details. But what was key about it was the ingredient, the kind of special ingredient, which was miso paste. And I was super skeptical, but uh, my my wife and I always like to try the kind of the weirdest cocktail on on the menu, and that one was with miso paste in it, uh, and it was unbelievably good and like they went heavy on the miso it was a miso forward cocktail there was something about the saltiness and the savoriness and i think it was probably something like miso bourbon and and lemon right so there was a kind of acidity to it, it was it was unbelievably tasty so um again i don't remember the details of the drink but uh, i do think that um if you're if you want to try a new thing try try a miso based cocktail Strong second of that one. I've had a number. I think miso and cocktails has been like a hot trend lately in recent weeks uh, or months, or maybe recent years. It is phenomenal. I've had a number of really good ones. Definitely seek out your miso cocktail, your nearest fine cocktailery. Quinto, what do you have for us? I will say I am not a big specialty drink person, so my suggestions are going to be really boring. I will put out a plug for my favorite cocktail, the Dark and Stormy, which uh, Scott informs me because I did not actually know uh, without having to look it up, is uh, ginger beer, rum, and lime. Uh, 
I also, this is a, a non-alcoholic option, but I imagine you could easily make it alcoholic and Scott will probably tell you how to do that. Um, I have been enjoying, since it is apple cider season, just taking some apple cider and putting it in a, a pot and heating it up on the stove with some spices. I usually use uh, cinnamon and nutmeg and it is just very, very cozy and a nice beverage to sip on a, a cold night. So Scott, inform me how I can make that into a, a cocktail. How can I hot toddy it? Well, I am on it because I drink hot apple cider the whole month of December through most of the winter with booze in it. It's phenomenal. Uh, I strongly recommend throwing in there, other than mulling spices, a little fruit. Actually, a little citrus is really nice. Some chopped up apples go a little bit like a, uh, like a, what's that Spanish drink with the wine? What am I thinking of? What's it called? Sangria. Sangria. Go a little sangria with it. You know, bring a little fruit in there. You can eat the little chunks of it later. Then I put in some demerara syrup, sugar, just because it kind of sweetens it up in a way. So when you mix booze in, it doesn't get too balanced out. Uh, And then I go half part brandy, half part bourbon up to your preferred strength in the hot cider. It is really phenomenal. I I knew I could count on you. And the thing I will also say, among your spices should be one star anise. Oh, that's important. Just one. More than that will make it go crazy. But the one is really worth it and really phenomenal. It's super, super potent, but really makes a big difference and really brings out all the other flavors. Highly recommended. Um, for Well, I, of course, uh, am a big cocktail head. Love to have shared drinks. And so I've shared lots of great drinks this uh, year. I will say the Palpable Apathy is one that I shared earlier this year. I think really stood out. was amazing. And I've actually had drinking very regularly and made its way into my rotation. A couple of other really good ones this year. Naked and Famous, also a, a, a common one for mine. But there's a recipe I got last Christmas, just after we recorded this episode, that is phenomenal um, from a phenomenal restaurant and bar in Colorado when I was visiting family out there. It's called Local Jones in Cherry Creek. Really, really phenomenal. It's in the Halcyon Hotel. And if I recall correctly, there was this speakeasy cocktail bar in the same hotel. I have actually not gotten to go because it was too covid at the time for me to visit. Um, but I believe they developed this recipe called the Diplomatic Handshake, which also speaks to my um, particular preferences professionally, which is a combination of Cayo single barrel whiskey a really unique ingredient, Okakura Bermuto Sake Vermouth, uh, which has a little bit of that savoriness, kind of like a miso sort of savory vibe, but much more mellow uh, and drier, uh, and some Amaro and the vanilla syrup and some bitters. So I will, uh, I'm going to ask the bar and restaurant to make sure they're okay with me sharing the recipe. If they will, uh, then I will post it in the show notes or and or on Twitter after the fact once to make sure they're okay with it. So folks can hopefully share that. But definitely check out the Diplomatic Handshake if and when I'm able to share the recipe. Otherwise, you know, wing it. Throw all those things together in a glass. It's going to turn out pretty good. You're not going to miss out. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode and this year's episodes because we will not be back in your podcatchers until the year 2023. But until then, remember that Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. So be sure to follow us on Twitter at RITL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. And while you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links and past episodes, for our written work, the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon, a wonderful gift for you or your loved ones this holiday season, for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Quentin Allen, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next year. Until then, Happy New Year. Hope you enjoy celebrating with your friends, family, and loved ones. Goodbye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.